0: scripture reading from Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. But the men lay down, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard before how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in heavens and above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. And the men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us to swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. and also the inhabitants of the land, melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks.
1: I know I know most of you. If you're visiting tonight, my name is Matt Clegg. I'm an intern here or a pastoral resident. Whichever one sounds more impressive to you, I will take. Um, I'm excited to be here. I really love this story, and I really love this um, study that we're doing called The Five Women of Christmas, and just to bring you up to speed, and this comes from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1, on uh, the genealogy of Jesus before Jesus is born, then we find five women, which was highly unusual for genealogies in the first century, and not only that, then almost all of the women have some kind of questionable element about their character. And so... Since Matthew thought it was important to include these women in the genealogy of Jesus, then we're doing this study through them. Will talked about Tamar from Genesis 38 last week, and Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, is the second one. So we're going to look at this story and see why it was important um, in that time and why it was important to the writer of Matthew, and then why, how is it relevant to us as we celebrate Christmas this year. So... That's where we're going to go. And to give you just a little bit, since this is a story, a context of where this sits, then Joshua is a conquest narrative. So the people of God, they've been going through the wilderness and they've arrived finally at the promised land that God had promised to bring them into. And in chapter 1, then God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous and to obey him in everything that he does and not to turn from to the right or to the left. And then in chapter 3, they actually cross over the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. And right in between is this chapter-long story about a Canaanite prostitute. And when this happens, this should kind of put a flag up in our minds that this chapter was put here for a reason, and it probably has something to do with Joshua's commitment of what God called him to do. This is why it would be important for us as we read it to to see this story before the crossing actually happens. And before we go there, then I want to talk about commitment a little bit because commitment is something that we have a little bit of a hard time with. I'll tell you this story Um, as happens periodically. Then Lauren and I will be sitting around in the evening and we'll look at each other and we've spent several evenings in a row, just nobody talking to each other. Everybody's on their own little device Kind of watching the minutes go until bedtime because we're tired. And so we said to each other, you know, maybe it would be a good idea if we would spend a little bit more quality family time. So we said we will read maybe the second best book after the Bible, which is The Hobbit. And so we were going to read The Hobbit out loud to all of our children. It was good at first. You know, there are a lot of stories of adventure in the beginning, and the kids were tracking, and then we get to the end, and there just turns into a lot of dialogue. And so then I, we kept asking them to read, and they said, no, we don't really want to read. It's boring. But us, as parents, you know, we didn't want to go back to where we were, as we wanted to spend quality time with our family. So one Saturday morning, I said, kids, do you want to read The Hobbit? And they said, no. So I said, good, we're going to read The Hobbit. So I sat him down in the chair, we read like two chapters straight, like just to finish this book, and everybody was perfectly miserable afterwards. <laughs> but this is kind of how our commitments work. Like, on the one hand, we felt like we were being a little bit lax, and we weren't spending enough quality time with our family. And so what we did in our zeal, we actually went too hard on the other side and kind of missed the purpose of what it was all about in the first place. I'm sure there's something that you can relate to in your own story that's very similar. But this is kind of the situation where the Israelites are in because their journey to the promised land has been full of a lot of failure where they had turned to the right and they had turned to the left. They'd made mistakes, they'd worshipped idols, they'd grumbled and complained and so much that the first generation of people who God had called out of Egypt were not allowed to come into the promised land. So this is like their next best chance. So there's a lot, of, a lot of momentum coming up into this, into this story, a lot of excitement and nervousness that they're going to turn lax again and it's all not going to come to fruition. However, with this Canaanite prostitute in here named Rahab, there's also another way that they could get their commitment all mixed up. And that's that they could think that the whole story was all about them, that it's all about them and their relationship with God. However, God has other purposes other than just calling out his own people, and that is to extend his blessing to the nations and to extend his grace to all people. So that's kind of where we are here in chapter 2 as we look at the story of Rahab. And so I think what this chapter is is a little bit of a a calibrating point in the story before going into the land of what his true commitment to God really look like for Israel. And in the way that the Old Testament does, in a really wonderful way, it answers this question not by being demanding of the people and not by making it a work of their own, but what we're going to see here is that the commitment is God's on behalf of His people. Almost this whole story just lays out God's commitment to His people as a nation and His commitment to use His people to bless other nations. So if there is one thing that you could just hang on to as we go through here and you go throughout your week and things get a little bit dicey, if you could remember is just that, that God is committed to his people. So let's look at it. And you can see in your bulletin on page 15, we're going to look at two aspects of this, which will represent kind of the two characters in this story. We're going to look at how God is committed to those inside the community which is represented by the spies and Joshua, and then we'll also look later on about um, from Rahab's perspective on how God is committed to those outside of the community. So, first, the first people to come on the scene here are the spies. So we'll start and look at the look at these insiders, and to give a there's there's so much backstory to hear that. We'll first talk about a cor- there's a, a big corporate concern to the people about their survival as a people as a whole, as far as their corporate identity. Um, as I kind of mentioned before, if you go back in the story, if you'll remember just after the Tamar story, then, then the story goes that all of Israel went down to Egypt, and then camped there, and they spread out, and then they were oppressed and God delivered them in spectacular means and called them out and said that they were going to be His own people. But they're wandering around. They don't have much of a land to call their own, so they don't have much of an identity called their own, a lot of stability, and they're just on their journey as a promise. However, if you'll remember from the story from Numbers 14, what happened outside of a lot of failures is they get to the land And they, I mean, they've been here once before in the first generation, and they sent spies into the land who went out and looked and came back with a report that the land is full of giants. It's full of people who are very well established, who have established kings, they have established military, and this is just this little wandering vagabond people who's hoping to come into this land. So that promise of God, there's a lot at stake I mean, is God going to fulfill His promise to establish them as His own people as in a corporate sense? Is He going to drive the people out? I mean, is He going to fight their battles for them? This is kind of, this is the context. And as we read this, this is kind of the emotional side. What's at stake? There's this, you know, there's a little bit of a fear of what's going to happen. So what happens? If you'll look, we get a little bit of a cue a clue at how to read this and that if you'll look at verse 1 of chapter 2, then it says in Joshua, the son of Nun sent two men secretly to Shittim as spies, saying, go spy out and view the land, especially Jericho. And Jericho was like the entrance into the land. This was the most important city that they would have to deal with um, as they were going on this conquest. But then skip with me all the way into the end. You know, We go through this story and the spies are in danger and Rahab delivers them. And then when they come out, they come back to Joshua and they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So the way the story is bracketed in is this is kind of a way that the author tells us this is what it's about. So one of the main messages we get from this is that God is already there. What they learn is as they're attempting to spy out the land, is they don't spy them out in a military sense. What they actually find is that God is already here, and the people are afraid of Him. It says they melt away. I mean, it's like you can think of butter in the microwave. But this is the state of the hearts of the people who are already in the land. In the land. There's, another, there's another thing to notice here. If you'll look at verse 11, right in the middle, it's not only... From the spies' perspective, do they find out, do we look? Do we see in this way, from the beginning and the end, that God is already there? Verse 11 is in this middle of the speech by Canaanite, a Canaanite named Rahab, who's a prostitute. One of the most unlikely people that we would expect to say these words. She says, As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God... He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So you see what happens. I mean, everybody has heard the stories and everybody is afraid. But Rahab goes from there's this big powerful God who defeated the Egyptians, who's stronger than the Egyptian army, to this is the only God who is the God who made the heavens and above and in the earth beneath. And she actually uses his covenant name here in this phrase. I mean, this is a remarkable confession that someone like Rahab would have made. And the only conclusion that these spies would have had is that God is here and God is at work. So what do we learn from this? First, it's that God is committed to his people as a nation. They have a lot at stake. They're going to fight a big battle and what they learn here is that God has committed this already. There's another element we have to talk here, in addition those inside the community, in addition to the their corporate identity being at stake, we also have to ask the question, but so God brings them in there and he delivers the nation, but what kind of people are they going to be? I mean, if we remember back from when Israel was at Mount Sinai, then idolatry was already an issue. And they're moving into a land that was full of idols. And there are some remarkable passages that set this. In Exodus 34, 11-16, I won't read it, but I would encourage you to go back and look at it. This is just after the people of Israel made the, a golden calf and they worshipped it. And Moses interceded on their behalf and God decided not to destroy them, but to, pres- to preserve them still. In Exodus 34, it actually says, When you go into the land, be careful, don't make any covenant. With anybody who's in the land because they're going to be a snare to you and you're going to, they're going to lead you into idolatry. That's the first generation of Israelites. Then Deuteronomy 7 1, addressed to the second generation of Israelites, it says almost the exact same thing. It says, When you go into the land, don't make a covenant with anybody in the land because they're going to be a snare for you, they're going to lead you into idolatry. So there's a lot of risk coming. I mean, I hope you get like I mean, this is a key moment. So this is the backstory, this is the risk, and then they come into the land and they find and they come in this house and meet a Canaanite prostitute who brings them into their house. I mean, as a reader, when we get to this point then we should see, uh oh, like this is not going well in the very, very first place. However, again, through this unlikely woman, what happens is something very, very remarkable. And that is that the person who is the most dangerous, the person that had the most potential to overthrow this mission right from the very get-go, actually becomes the means through which God uses to preserve his people and to save them and to to get them out. And in a sense, we could say, Rahab actually teaches Israel and teaches us as readers what faith actually looks like rather than the way around. Now again, with with chapter 1 being the call to be faithful to God and to obey Him and to put their trust fully in Him, and what does Rahab do? She actually throws, puts her whole self at risk, throws everything she has in hope, upon God, and she saves the people, the spies, and she delivers them out. I mean, this is what an example of faith. So, I mean, we have to appreciate the irony of the way that God is working here. Again, a lot at stake, in both a corporate sense and in a moral sense. Not only are they, are they going to be a people, but are they going to be a people that actually is obedient to God, or are they going to be a people that turns to idolatry, so what do we learn again? It's the same thing. We learn that God is already there and that He has already committed to His people. God is at work even in the most unlikely place through the most unlikely person. And it's His commitment that is carrying the story forward and it's His commitment that gives the reader hope for what is to come. Now we've got to ask this question though. I mean, what does this mean to us? here in Birmingham, Alabama, in 2016. I mean, because we're not Israel. Yeah, the the situation has greatly changed since then. I mean, we can't just go out and and take risks and say that, you know, does this story mean that I can just put myself in danger and that God's going to bail me out through miraculous means? You know, I mean, what do we do with stories like this? What do they mean to us? In a sense... I mean, God's commitment goes a long way to us as we, as we appreciate what He's doing for Israel in this moment because we are still a part of this people. I mean, we are inheritors of these stories. And that God's commitment to His people, even in this key situation, says a lot about His commitment to His people as a whole. I mean, we have, I think we have lots of questions in our day. I mean, like, does the gospel really change lives? I mean, like, does he really work through the church? I mean, does he really, does does things really happen? Are lives healed? Are, Are people saved? I mean, is the church, the mission of the church successful? Is the message of the gospel relevant to our culture? You know, does prayer work? I mean, all kinds of things. I mean, especially with the kind of cultural and political turmoil that our world is in now, it's very easy for us to say that, you know, as a people both in a corporate sense and in a moral sense, that, you know, it just, it often doesn't seem like there's much going on. However, those first stories like these are really important because they demonstrate God's commitment to his people and his purposes with them. Because if we belong to this people and we see how God deals with his people, then it tells us a lot about how he deals with us as well. So in a sense, this is calibrating for us in that way, and that where we're tempted to give up and to lose hope and to turn to other things that seem to be more effective, then this is a check, and it is a reminder to us that God's commitment and His purposes are still with His people. That's where they have always have been. And also in the moral sense, like, I mean, Israel failed a lot. I mean, leading up to this point, and God was gracious with them. I mean, I don't know if you know what that's like. I mean, to be a member of God's people and feel like it's, you know, your life has been a stop-start and a stop-start and a stop-start. And, you know, is God committed to us even in that situation? I think these are the things we learn. First, for the insiders in the story. But I do want to remind us that this we're not just talking about Joshua chapter 2. Because we're also talking about Matthew chapter 1 and the birth of Jesus. And what does that mean? How does this apply? And that the birth of Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this story and sign to us of God's commitment to His people. And that, you know, this was not the end of the story. It went on, and there were great successes with Joshua, and there were great successes at other times, like with David, and then there were also lots of failures, like in the time of the judges and then time of the kings, And his people were sent into exile. I mean, it was up and down journey the whole way. However, God preserved his people to the point where we arrive in Matthew, to where, through this whole stop-start story, then there was born the person Jesus, who would not only... You know, here what's at stake is the land and the promised land, but what Jesus gives is not just a land, but that he is actually the inheritor of the whole earth. That everything belongs to Him. And, you know, that's why we read as Isaiah 9. You can turn back and look at it in your bulletin if you'd like to. It's just a wonderful passage. It talks about the kingship of Jesus. And His ownership of all things. Which is the, the foundation of our identity and the foundation of our trust. That God really is committed to us. That He would send His Son to ultimately be the heir of all things. That's in the corporate sense, but also in the moral sense, is that we, the ones who struggle, who have those stop start kind of lives, who are up and down and struggle with faithfulness, like these people, that Jesus is the answer. That he would send his son for us, that we would have confidence that we do belong to him, that he is committed to us, and that he loves us. So that's the one side. That's those inside, all that is those inside the community. But that's not the only part of the story, as we also have Rahab, who Rahab is, again, one of the most unlikely people we expect. I mean, she really has almost everything against her that you could, that you could really think of. I mean, she is in first, she's a Canaanite, so she's not a member of the people of God. So she's like the object of this conquest. I mean what God is doing is in this moment of history is that you know his people are not going to survive in the middle of this situation with the with the idolatry and the wickedness of this people. So he's actually replacing the people in the land and he is putting his own people there instead to be a light to the nation's character. However, if since Rahab's a Canaanite, it means she's got to move out. Now, I know into our modern ears, this is really repugnant in a lot of ways. I mean, the thought that, you know, God would, you know, choose one people over another and that He would actually, like, displace all of these people just for His, you know, that kind of makes us a little bit uncomfortable. However, what Rahab reminds us, and I would encourage you to read it at a time, I'll read it very quickly, um, In Genesis chapter 12, we want to go back again in the story. And this is the chapter when God called Abraham. So this was the very beginning after the creation of all things by God and the interest of sin into the world. This is the first time where he called somebody where he was starting with his his own people. And he says this, in Genesis chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what does that say? I mean, so on the one hand, there's all this risk going on that the people of Israel are going to fall back on their commitments to God... However, the inclusion of this Canaanite prostitute into the people of God is just a little bitty taste of the purpose that God called his people to in the very first place. And it was not just for Israel. It was not just to have a people who are all like each other, who are separate from everybody else. That the whole purpose of God's people was so that all nations of the earth would be blessed through them that God's blessing that was given to the people would get passed on, and it would be known by all nations. So Rahab is a little bit of a glimmer of this hope, and it's it's a reminder, again, as we read this story, especially in a time of conquest of what it's all about. It's not just about Israel, but it's also about those outside now, I do want to talk, address this issue briefly. Is how has this come to be? Again, remember we talked about before all these passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy that say, you shouldn't make any covenant with anybody in the land. However, what do they do? They make this covenant with a Canaanite prostitute. And how can that be? I think the difference is this. If you'll look again in verse 11, that confession of hers. What she says is the Lord, your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And then she throws her whole life onto Him. Um, All of her safety, all of her family. So what happens here? I I think essentially is that these spies don't make a covenant with a Canaanite as they actually make a covenant with an Israelite. Because in that confession in Rahab actually throwing herself onto the person of God, that she was included in the family there in that moment. Because the whole issue of this risk is one of idolatry, but what did Rahab do? Is She didn't turn to any other hope, but she, turned, she threw everything she had onto, onto Yahweh and His faithfulness and His commitment. So what do we learn from all this? First, I mean, again, we look at the corporate sense as we follow this story, it's remarkable to us that God brought in somebody from another nation. And this shows us that God's commitment is not just to his own people group, but it's committed to all nations and all genders and all people no matter where they live. I mean, if you notice the little verse that Rahab lived in a wall, like essentially that's telling us she lived on the wrong side of town, like this is in the poorer parts. But all of these things were included in God's people, and it shows that it's God's commitment to them as well what about the moral sense? I mean, that's kind of obvious here. Rahab is not, a, not only a Canaanite, she's also a prostitute. And she's also certainly an idolater. However, even here, she's engrafted in the people of God. She's made a part of the community. And this is a demonstration, again, that even those on the furthest outside... I mean, Rahab could not get any lower than she was. But even that wasn't enough to keep her outside of God's people. God's committed to even those in a moral sense who are about as far outside as they can get. I want to refer to you to a remarkable passage in James 2, chapter 2, which I won't read, but I would encourage you to go and read it. It's in a, in a context of James is talking about not showing partiality from one type of person to another. This is the broader context. And then he uses two examples in talking about the faith of them, one is Abraham, where he holds up Abraham as an example that Abraham believed um, and held him up as an example of faith, who is, of course, the very first. Like, he is the patriarch of Israel. He's the Israelite of Israelites. You can't get any more of that than Abraham. The other example that he uses is Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. And he talks about her faith and how she threw herself and her safety on Yahweh by saving the spies. And she is held up as an example of faith. Same two people, same family, held up at the same place. This is God's commitment to His people, not only the insiders, but also to the outsiders as well. But again, what does this mean to us? I mean on the one hand that is similar to the last point, is it gives us a little bit of a glimmer of a view of what God's commitment is like. God is not just committed to His own people, but He's committed to all people, no matter who they are, where they come from, or what they've done. And this is also a reminder to us that our very existence is not just for ourselves. It is not just to enjoy the blessings of God. But we, as God's people, have a calling, and that is to God's commitment to those outside as well. To extend His blessing to all peoples. And again, as we ask, and we're funneling down here, you know, we, we could make that application from these people as a call to us, as a calibrating our commitment to those on the outside, both to sinners and anybody who's different from us alike. However, remember, this is also, we're talking about Matthew chapter 1, and we're talking about the arrival of Jesus. And what other good news is there for people on the outside that God himself would send his only son to give his own life so that the people who are as far outside as they can get can be welcomed in and have equal standing with anybody else? I mean, this is the good news that we're celebrating Christmas. And this is why the author of Matthew is excited to put this story, to put, you know, make reference to it in Jesus' genealogy, because Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He's a fulfillment of this hope, that outsiders could be made insiders and could share in the inheritance. So I want to end with this. I mean, I want to ask you this question. You know, I'd imagine some of you in this room... um, and oscillate between the two, some of you um, probably feel about as low as you can get in a lot of ways. You might feel like you come from the wrong family. You might feel like you come from the wrong neighborhood. You might feel like you, you know, whatever it may be, the, any way that you feel like an outsider. But also, I mean, you might feel like just the things that you have in your life, and your story, there are secrets and they're hidden and you wonder whether somebody like you could even be included in God's family at all. You know, Jesus is the answer. I mean, what we say here is that because, essentially because of Jesus and that commitment that he has to his people that you actually share in the same family with a Canaanite prostitute. And I think that is really good news. Some of you are come from, might come of this from the other side, as you might think that you're on the top, and you are the example of faith for all of the rest of us. And you know, again, I think I go back and forth between these on the hour. But it's the same thing that means there, is that you share in the same family with a Canaanite prostitute. It's not just about you, but it is about God's commitment to His people, and His gracious purposes. It's this commitment that we celebrate at Christmas this year with the, with the sending of His Son. And I hope you know this. I hope you know God's commitment. And if you don't, this is I think this passage is a wonderful invitation of demonstrating who He is and what He is all about. And I pray that you would do that. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are a people who are full of mistakes who have up and down lives who have shaky commitments and who are liable to turn to the right and to the left but we're also thankful and we celebrate this year that you did send Jesus that you have been committed to your people all through history since the very beginning but we do get to celebrate the good good news that you would send your son for us And because of that, that we can have confidence in your commitment for us. I pray that you would help us to remember that. And because of that, that we would give you our commitments, both to your care for us and also to the people around us that you're committed to. And that we would be a part of that, part of your work for all of the nations. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.